Mark chapter 11 for our Bible study. And from the title and the notes, it's very clear what the story is that we're talking about. Any of you um, who have done any kind of reading about the Jewish culture, you probably came across a book that in modern Jewish writings, it's considered a, a really classical book discussing the Jewish state of uh, the state of the Jewish peoples here in America by an Alan Dershowitz. Dershowitz was a young man who at 28 was put into uh, the Harvard Law School as one of their sitting professors, the youngest man to ever be put in that position. So he's a brilliant man. And uh, he did, he worked in the Harvard Law School a number of years teaching. And then uh, as his children got older, his daughter married a Catholic, even though Dershowitz, I should back up, Dershowitz was a Jew. Not a Orthodox Jew, but a Jew who practiced the traditions. And so he practiced a lot of the different events more out of tradition and culture than a religious purpose. And so he trained his kids that way. But when his daughter got to be marriageable age, she married a Roman Catholic, which caused him to think this through. What is happening to the state of the Jewish people in America? And why are the numbers of those who claim and and say Judaism is their background, their religion, their heritage, why are they plummeting compared to what they were 50 years ago? And so he wrote this book called The Vanishing Jew in America, and he's trying to understand why is it the numbers are decreasing. And he came up with three strong reasons. One was the the lessening numbers of children within each family. The Jewish peoples would have larger families years ago, and now all of a sudden they're averaging under two children, not even a a re- uh, a repopulating growth. And so that stood out. Mixed marriages stood out, like what happened in his family. The other thing that he pointed out was that there was a lot of secularism to the point that many of the Jews were even not only not practicing the religion, but not even practicing the traditions and a lot of the the uh, the cultural aspects of what a Jew does and how they're identified. And so he ended up writing towards the end of the book asking a question, how do we know who is a Jew anymore? Well, that was picked up, um, whether he picked it up or, or uh, uh, others did, but that was the same question asked, by the way, in 1948. If you've any of the history, when they were starting to resettle Israel, the big question is, who is a Jew, so that they could determine who could be a citizen? Well, after Dershowitz had put out his book, The Vanishing Jew, there were several articles and written by those who were Jewish magazines talking about, okay, let's identify who is a Jew. One of the leading magazines had a featured article one time uh, here about three, four years ago, and they started off the article basically like this. They were saying whether we are orthodox, whether we are secular, whether we are traditionalist, all of us who claim and to be Jews have one thing in common. That one thing in common is we reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah of the Jews. It was interesting that that magazine, from a secular point of view, would take such a strong stand in a theological point of view, which their magazine wasn't even theological in in its orientation. And yet that was their defining criteria for all the different types of peoples who claim to be Jew. Whether, again the practicing religious or the secular, is we reject Jesus Christ. When I heard about that and read that article, when that came out, I remember thinking to myself, isn't that strange? They're claiming that the Jews historically have rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. But when you go into the New Testament and you start reading what happened in the New Testament, did all the Jews reject Jesus? No. In fact, what was the, what was the ethnic makeup of the church originally? It was Jewish. 
And if you remember reading, even in the regions of Galatia, and even in the areas of Philippi and the church of Ephesus, one of the makeups of those churches was they had a strong Jewish element within those churches. And they even discussed, should everybody who's coming into the church become a Jew first and uh, then continue on in their Christianity. So that idea that the Jews have always rejected Christ isn't true. In fact, there's one time in history that the, even the city of Jerusalem came out in mass in support of Jesus Christ. And that's the story we're talking about tonight. When Jesus Christ is starting his ministry uh, of coming into Jerusalem, his Passion Week, as he comes in on the triumphal entry, according to Matthew 21, the entire city comes together. And they're all caught up with this. And some are asking, who is he? And some are saying, he's the Messiah. But there was this enthusiasm, this excitement for Jesus Christ. Let's set the scene of of Mark chapter 11, which is Mark's version of that story. The setting, if you remember any of the history, and we're going to go back a little bit, is the Jews had been out of the land for the 70 years of captivity in that 6-700 era of time. In the mid-500s, they come back, they resettle their property, they rebuild, and then they go under the leadership or under the authority of the Seleucids, part of the remaining Greek empire for a number of years, but they have a revolt. They get their own independence that lasts for a number of decades. They are once again a free people. They are operating and doing their own thing. They have their temple rebuilt and they're celebrating under the Maccabeans the idea that we are a free nation. But then there's a lot of civil unrest and right around uh, roughly 150 years before uh, Jesus Christ comes on the scene, the Romans come in and they occupy that region to to get peace and to have that whole region settle down and the Romans take over the area of the government when it comes to the nation of Israel. So by the time Jesus comes on the scene, they've been dominated for a little over that 100, 148 years by the Romans and they are really biting at the bit. They want to be free. They, they, they're thinking, they're looking back that their ancestors just a few decades ago, they were a free people. They, they look back in their history and they say that the their peoples were gaining, had gained their freedom from the Egyptians in bondage and then they had been a free people and so they yearn for that. They read the prophets as they get together in the synagogues and so many of the prophets talk about a time when they will be free and independent, when a leader will come, a deliverer, and he will, he will let them be the outstanding nation. They read that in Isaiah. They read it in Jeremiah. They read about that idea in Daniel. They read about it in Ezekiel. They read about it in Zechariah. They read about it in Malachi. All these different prophets are talking about a day when a deliverer come and the nation of Israel will be free and they'll be able to do as they want in serving the Lord. So they're anxious for that. Now at the time of Christ, they, they're looking back and they're reading those, those stories of freedom. They're, they're hearing about it and Yet there's been nothing going on for 400 years. There's been nothing from God. The heavens have been silent. And then all of a sudden in that 25 AD, there's a man who shows up and he starts preaching. Unusual. And he draws massive amount of crowds. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's preaching about repentance. And the people are drawn and even the leaders of the Jews are interested in this man in this hairy garment who's preaching by the river Jordan. And then one day as John the Baptist continues his preaching and the crowds are excited and they have that that taste for freedom, that taste for maybe we're going to be a nation that's going to be independent and under, under the rule of that deliverer, then Jesus shows up. 
And Jesus begins his three-year ministry. Now, if you were living there, what would be going through the countryside? What would be, what would be rippling through all the different towns? What kind of stories about Jesus would they be sharing with one another that would cause enthusiasm and expectation? The miracles. Jesus is coming. I mean, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the lepers are healed, the dead come back to life. And Jesus is moving around the countryside. He's assaulting the demons. And there is just, you know, time after time helping to break the bondage of sin in people's lives. And Jesus is preaching like no man preached. And so there's an an anticipation that this Jesus is going to free us. He's going to bring the the deliverance. And so the big expectation is, Jesus is, is he the one? Is he the promised one? And John the Baptist even questioned him at one time. Jesus said, who do you think I am? And his disciples make that proclamation. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ, the same word. And so there's that, that hunger for Jesus to, to show himself and to claim his throne. Well, Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. And he's going to approach his last week. One third of the Gospel of Mark is given to this last week. From this point on to the end of chapter 16 is, about seven, is all about seven days. Those, uh, those several chapters. And so that Sunday morning, Jesus is coming towards the city. And he's coming from the Mount of Olives over there. And he's coming to Jerusalem. And as you would, you would be along that road, remember, there's lots of other pilgrims traveling. This is Passover week. There's lots of people in the, in the roads. There's lots of people camping along the way. The city is becoming you know, expanded with a large volume of travelers who are there to celebrate their Jewishness. And then that Sunday morning, all of a sudden, here comes Jesus from Bethphage, and he starts coming over the Mount of Olives. Now, to get the scene, the Mount of Olives is about 200 feet higher than the mount, top of Mount Zion. And so there would be that crest that Jesus would come over. And the, and the Jews would remember this. They would remember that years ago, that Mount of Olives, that was, that was filled with a lot of idols. That's the place where Solomon built the idols for his wives that God condemned in history. That's the place where you know, David, when he had to flee for his life because of Absalom, he vacated Jerusalem, went down through the Kidron Valley and up and over the Mount of Olives. This is the place that has some sad notes in history. This is, this is the route that Ezekiel talks about seeing in his vision how the Shekinah glory leaves the Ark of the Covenant, stands above the temple, and then it, it, it comes out of the city of Jerusalem, goes down through the valley, and then up onto the Mount of Olives, and then it disappears from sight as if God has left the city. Now, generations later, here comes the Son of Glory come marching over the mountaintop of the Mount of Olives, and here he comes, and he's going to head down this way, and he's going to come to the city of Jerusalem. The roads are packed. The crowds are excited. There's a great enthusiasm. But the overriding question that the Jews are asking, according to Matthew 21, is, who is he? Who is he? It's not that they don't know about Jesus. They're just wondering, is he the one? And so Mark picks up with that story, and as we go through the text, just there's, there's so many different ideas, but keep in mind that this is written, and this whole setting is answering that big question for the Jews, who is Jesus? Who is he really? So we, as we look through the story, we just pick up in verse 1. And when they were come nigh unto Jerusalem, unto Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sends forth two of his disciples. 
the beginning of the parade is ready to start. And he says, go over the way into the village over against you. And as soon as you enter into it, you shall find a colt tied whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, why do you do this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way. They found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met. And they loosed him. Certain of them that stood there said unto them, What are you doing, loosing the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon the donkey. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down the branches of the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before, they that followed, cried, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus, he entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the evening tide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. This is a whole day affair. This is an activity that Jesus is very, very involved in. And so if we're going to take it from a Jewish point of view, if we're going to take it from Mark's point of view that says, okay, who is this Jesus? And Mark's writing to the Romans, and he's trying to identify this is, this is Jesus, who he is. Let's identify several things about Jesus that aren't new to any of you. That all of you could write this, could do this better than I could. But it's very apparent in this one story as well as the other stories who Jesus is. He is somebody who knows absolutely everything. In this story, how is Jesus' omniscience? His ability as the all-knowing one. How is that demonstrated in this story? At the beginning of the story, what do we have? Jesus talking about the animal. He's just saying, guys, go down into the city and you're going to find this animal. When you find this animal, then you bring that to me. They're going to ask you this question and you say to them this and they're going to let you. How does he know all that? He knows everything. He knows the future. And so in just a subtle way, the author wants us to just remember once again that Jesus is aware of everything. He knows everything. And who, who is it that knows everything? Yeah, it's, it's God. This is just another simple, small demonstration of his godness, his greatness. If you think about it, we've had that materialized several times through the gospel. It's Jesus that knew the woman of the well. He knew all about her lifestyle. It was Jesus that knew Nathaniel sat under the tree reading scriptures. It was Jesus that knew the disciples were arguing over them amongst themselves who is the greatest. It was Jesus that knew the heart of those who would come and test him time and time again. So once again, the author wants his readers to understand Jesus knows everything. And he's the only one who knows everything. Something else that stands out. So simple and yet so profound. He's the one who is in control. Total control. The one who is in total control. How do you get that out of the story? How do we see that Jesus is in total control? Once again, let's go to the event of the donkey. Okay, What do we know about this donkey that is unusual? Never ridden, okay? So this donkey, there's no indication that there's any problem. Jesus is, Jesus is in control of the events, the owners of the donkey. He just shows up. I don't know about you, but if somebody came up and said, hey, um, so, you know, so-and-so wants your car, I think most of us would hesitate if we don't know wh- what's going on here. 
And yet Jesus in total control of the entire situation, it's, it's very clear in his control. He's planned the details. This isn't just something that is off the cuff. He's got this all in order. He's totally in control. Um, up to this point, what has Jesus been telling people who have broadcasted, oh, he healed me. Oh, this is the Son of God. What has he been telling them repeatedly up to this point? Be quiet. Now in this case, it's totally different. In this case, he wants the people, and he accepts their celebration. In fact, when Luke 19, who has the parallel story, when Luke writes about it, he says that the leaders of the Jews come up to Jesus as he's riding into town, and they tell him, tell the people to stop making so much, so much of hubbub. You need to quiet the people down. And what does Jesus say? If they didn't cheer, then what would? The stones and the rocks would cry out. And so Jesus is making it very clear that even though he commanded silence in the past, now he wants to be the expression of the, the people's expression of their, uh, of their faith. He wants the demonstration. He is ordering and he's in control of the parade. It's an amazing situation. When he goes in verse 11 and he stands in the temple... Okay, He comes and it talks about how he goes to the temple, but he looks around. The word that is used there is he surveys the situation. He, he, he doesn't react, but he's in total control of surveying this. Oh, the next day, does he take any action when he goes back into the temple? Yeah, and in anger, he disrupts total control of the situation, total control of his own self, total control of all that is going on. Jesus Christ, the great one in that absolute... He is, third of all, the one who fulfills prophecy. The one who fulfills prophecy. Now, Mark doesn't write that. Mark tells us the story, but he doesn't, like Matthew, tell us that this was a fulfillment of Scripture. The reason Mark doesn't do that, and Matthew does, is because Matthew is written to the Jews who would know the prophecy. Mark is written to the Romans that don't know the Jewish prophecy. But is there an indication in this text that Jesus fulfilled prophecy? Absolutely. Let's take our Bibles and let's head over to Zechariah. Towards the end of the New Testament, I mean, sorry, the beginning of the New Testament, the end of the Old Testament, just a couple books later in the Old Testament, we have the Zechariah chapter 9. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, there's this text. Zechariah 9.9. 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes unto thee. He is just. He has salvation. Lowly and riding upon an ass. Okay? Upon the colt, the foal of an ass. And so it's very clear from the text that there is this prediction. Oh, there's another prediction. That, that was stated in a very subtle fashion. Psalm chapter 118, or should we say Psalm 118. We want us to turn there and mark this if you've never marked it before. Psalm 118, we have another statement about what's going to happen in the future that was stated in a subtle way, and then you read it now and you go, wow, that is so true of what happened. Psalm 118, starting with verse 25. It says, that, well, let's go to verse 24. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send prosperity. Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. 
Those words are repeated hundreds and hundreds of years later by the crowd as Jesus comes marching in. Do you remember Ezekiel 34, the prophecy that's given in this text? In Ezekiel 34, it's talking about how God is so disappointed with, so upset with the Jewish leadership, how those who were the shepherds were not shepherding the people, how those who were the teachers weren't teaching the people, that how those who were to be the spiritual caregivers were taking and not giving. And he says in Ezekiel 34 that he is upset with them, and eventually he is going to come, and he is going to do the shepherding himself. Well, Jesus is fulfilling that whole prophecy to a great degree when he comes and says, okay, I'm going to minister to the people because these are people like individuals who have no shepherd. Several times that's been stated. And so Jesus has been fulfilling that role of the pastor to those people of the Israel because they've been, they've been in a vacuum of spiritual leadership amongst the, by, their, by their rulers and by their spiritual leaders. And so Jesus comes and fulfills that prophecy. He fulfills the specific prophecy about that idea of riding on the colt. He's the one who's coming in the name of the Lord. So all of this is extremely, extremely uh, applicable in the idea that as Jesus comes and marches into the city, he is making it clear he's in control. His disciples can see it, making it clear that he knows everything. They're, those behind the scene know that. He's making it clear, I'm fulfilling the prophecy that was specifically given about this march, this, this type of a, of a parade. And so Jesus is fulfilling all those. And, and you, know, you know who is conspicuously absent from the story? They're only mentioned the one time in Luke 19, are the ones who know the Old Testament the best. Right? The scribes only show up to do one thing, criticize and point it out. But Jesus and the others are caught up in this idea of let's fulfill prophecy. That brings us to the, third, to the fourth fact about Jesus, of who he is. He is the predicted Messiah. And it is clear in the text that he fulfills this role. Okay? The, um, some people will, will um, look at that story of the donkey and riding in the donkey, and they'll wonder why he did that. Well, understand that back in the, in the Old Testament, in First um, Kings chapter 1, when David was dying, he has Solomon paraded before the entire city and brought around the city through the streets so that David could say, I am off the throne and now my regent, my son Solomon, is going to be your king. He wasn't the oldest child. And so David wanted to make sure they all knew. Do you remember what the animal was that David had Solomon paraded through the streets? He was on a he was on a donkey. Okay. The donkey in the Jewish culture was a symbol of peace. It was a symbol of not warfare. Did they and had they at times come in on white horses, so to speak? That's true, they did. But this was a very apparent situation that the the nobility, the parades for kings, coming and having a peaceful transition, they would ride the donkey. So here comes Jesus riding in, showing nobility in Jewish culture, showing that he is the Prince of Peace, and the people are screaming, and they're yelling, and they're making statements that are, that are really lost on you and me because we don't understand them with their Jewishness. They start making the statement, Hosanna. You, you know what that one is, right? Yes? No? You have a footnote? What's Hosanna? Hmm? We read it, we talk about it, we should know what it is. The literal translation is, Lord, save, I pray. 
Lord save, I pray. We'll come back to that in a moment. Okay? But they make these other comments. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Well, in a Jewish mind, who is that? Well, it's somebody special from God. Tied to the next phrase. Blessed be the what? The kingdom of our father David. So the one who's coming in the name of the Lord is bringing in what with him? The kingdom. This is only one person. Do you remember what Bartimaeus was screaming? Just as they were marching by Jericho. We looked at this last week. That as they were coming through Jericho, blind Bartimaeus was saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. That phrase, thou son of David, was an Old Testament concept. That here he was, the one who is the descendant, who is coming to be able to take the throne. The one who is the special uh, messenger from God. And now the crowds are cheering those things. Talking about, you are the one bringing in the kingdom of David. You are the one who is the coming in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Lord, save us now. You who are the elevated one. Please do a work. Rescue us. Now they're thinking saving. The crowd basically is talking about political salvation. But they understand. And, and by the way, the leaders understand what's going on. To remember as the crowds are cheering and as they're celebrating and got the festivity and they're laying down the palm branches and they're putting down the garments. It's very clear what the garments is all about. It's, a, it's an expression that he is an exalted one, that he's an important one. The palm branches basically come from a Maccabean period. That period when they were all of a sudden having their period of freedom here a couple, uh, several generations before. And the palm branches came to be identified with that idea of independence and deliverance. And so it became a very common symbol of the Maccabean period. And so for them to be waving this and to be putting it down... It was, a, it was indicative that they're talking that this one is going to be the deliverer. This one is going to get rid of the bondage of the Roman rule. The people have no doubt about it. They are celebrating as if the king of a new, the king who is promising deliverance is coming marching in the city. And we are all for it. And we are all excited about it. Now the problem is they want a political freedom. They want a material and a physical salvation. And Jesus is bringing them a, um, a spiritual salvation, a spiritual freedom. And so there's that conflict that happens. But the problem isn't in, in what Christ is presenting. The problem is their understanding. And so here he is. He's making it very clear that he's accepting it. He's not denying it. He wants them. And, you know, there's some people who say, who make these comments. They say that um, Jesus really wasn't trying to present himself as the deliverer. His disciples made up uh, his story and his, his uh, understanding later on. Jesus was kind of a confused person. You know, Jesus didn't really know his mission. That's all false. Jesus is the one who is in control. Jesus is the one who initiated this. Jesus is the one fulfilling scripture. Jesus is making it very clear that Jesus believes and knows he's the Messiah. And he wanted everybody there to catch this. So he establishes this celebration. And by the way, there's something more here. Jesus is not only the greatest human being that is coming, the one who was promised to come, but he is the divine man. Jesus is the divine man. It is very clear that he is more than just a king. He is God in the flesh, which they weren't, they weren't fully ready for. They didn't fully understand that. 
And even his disciples struggled with that concept. But it's very clear in this text, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Tell them that the Lord has need of this donkey. This animal, this animal is totally yielded to the creator. The stones would cry out. Creation itself would burst out if there was a silence by the people in this parade. Jesus being God and the rulers knew exactly what was being claimed here. They understood exactly what Jesus was doing, what was being implied, and they said, stop it, stop it, stop it. But Jesus said, nope, nope. Because I know everything, I'm in total control. Because here I am, I am the anointed one, the Messiah. Here I am, I'm the divine man. This celebration is, is appropriate. By the way, there's one other thing that's very clear here. He is the only one who can save. He is the only one who can save. When they call out that Hosanna, Lord, save, I pray. They don't realize what they're calling out. In there in the full totality. But he is the only one who could save. The Messiah is the only one who can rescue Israel. The Messiah is the only one who can rescue them politically. The Messiah is the only one who can rescue them spiritually. Jesus has made it clear already in his ministry. He's going to repeat that during this week. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. This Jesus in this account is is letting the people ascribe to him exactly what he deserves. This celebration on that Sunday, it was very appropriate. They didn't fully realize what they were doing, but it was extremely appropriate that Jesus would get their worship, would get their adoration. And yet, the problem with those people was they had a festive Sunday that didn't last into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. When we come and we worship Christ, we understand who he is. We have more knowledge. He is the all-knowing one. He is the only one who saves. He is the, the divine man. He is the Messiah. He should get more from us than just a Sunday festive worship service. He should get our honor, our praise, our adoration every day. And it should last even in the tough times. So the story is replete with all kinds of spiritual truth that you know about. You understand that. But can I take another vantage point? When Jesus is approaching this final week, this Passion Week, he has already told them that he has set an example. That as he received the little ones, you received the little ones. We talked about that before. As he has become the servant unto all men. You, my disciples, are to become a servant. He is taking, in each one of those comments that he made, he is taking that aspect of his suffering, is providing us an example for how to live. That's exactly what Peter builds up in First Peter chapter 2, where he says the sufferings of Christ are for our example that we should follow in his steps. Now, I know there's different ways of doing the Gospels and studying them. There are some who say, well, the Gospels only provide us exemplary truths, how we should live. And you and I would say, no, no, the Gospels tell us about redemptive truth, how Jesus Christ can save. But I fear that sometimes there are groups who swing the pendulum to only an example from Jesus Christ. And then there are some who only salvation from Jesus Christ and yet the Scripture says there's a balance with both. Without, without at all minimizing salvation, does Jesus provide us an example of how to live? He is. He does. 
He is doing that through his story. And through his sufferings, we can stop and look and say, okay, how did he handle sufferings? How did he handle the Passion Week? That should give us an example to follow in his steps. As I look at how he acted, that is more significant for you and I who already recognize who he is. What he's like, several thoughts to just share with you quickly. In this account, several thoughts stand out about what Jesus was like that we need to imitate. He was brave. He was very brave. Think it through. In this parade to Jerusalem, where is his bravado? In a good sense. Where is his bravery? Okay, is there any threat in this city? Hasn't he already said three times in Matthew, in, in Mark 8.31, 9.31, 10.32, and 33, hasn't he already predicted in just the last couple weeks that he is, when he comes to the city, he is going to be rejected, scourged, spit upon, and then he's going to die and resurrect. As he's marching to the city, what is he marching towards? Certain death. Certain death. By the way, just, just to put it in its, its context, go over to John with me. Go to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 precedes this account. And the reason I say that without trying to be silly, John 11 is before John 12. John 12 is, the, is the, uh, uh, what we would call the triumphal entry. Let's read a few verses before that. In John chapter 11, go down to verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council that said, What do we do? For this man does many miracles. If we let him alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away our, both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, said, You guys know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus, Jesus should what? He should die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he should also be, uh, should gather together and one the children of God. Verse 53, from that day forth, they took counsel together to do what? Okay, and Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into the countryside, into the wilderness, etc., etc., and it says in down at the end of verse 57, Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees gave a commandment that if any man knew where he were, then he would show it and they might take him. So just days before, there's been a, um, a warrant put out that Jesus has to die. Go down a little bit more. Verse 9 of the chapter 12. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake, but that they might see Lazarus, that he had ra- whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away believing. And then you have the triumphal entry. And so you have that, you have before... Before Jesus makes this this trip, he knows the sentiment in Jerusalem. He knows that the leadership is absolutely determined he's going to die. They've been looking for him. They're trying to hunt him down. And here he comes marching in to this whole huge parade of people. It's not like he's sneaking into the city and trying to be silent about it. It's an announcement. Here I am. But think about this. What has he just done to the Romans, and to the Jewish leadership. He's done something to them. By this parade, what has he done? 
He showed he's, he's showing he's in charge more than we think because he's forced their hand. They have to do something now. This can't be just forgotten. The gauntlet is, is thrown down. Jesus is coming in and, and by what has happened, by the palm branches, the, they're not dumb people. Okay? This would be like standing up in German occupation in, German, in, in World War II and for a Frenchman to stand up and sing the French national anthem in the midst of Nazi soldiers. This is, this is just a statement. I'm here. You've got to deal with me. There's real, there is real bravery to do the will of God in this man, in this God-man. It is just amazing. And then he tells us in passages like Peter, where he says, walk in his steps when you suffer. One of the first illustrations he does in application is, wives, if you have an unbelieving spouse, you need to walk in faith without fear. You need to trust me. He talks a little bit later in there how, how we need to be before the government. We need to do righteous deeds without fear. Because Jesus is our example. We need to share the word of God without fear. We need to be doing what is right without fear. The man's, the man's bravery is an example. The man's humility is an example. He was humble. Humble in the fact that most people would say, oh, he's humbled because he's riding on a donkey. That shows real humility. In our thinking, it does. But remember, in Jewish thinking, that's not as much humility as it is, you know, nobility. And though it's a lowly animal coming in peace, the, strike, the thought that strikes me more about the donkey is this. It wasn't his own. What did Jesus possess? Who... Who's, who, who, by, by the way, this is the only other time in scriptures that Jesus wasn't walking. It's the only time he's riding. Every other time he rode something, it was a boat. This is the only animal we know that he rode personally. Okay, with Mary in the womb, that's possibility, but uh, no doubt. But otherwise, he's always walking. And this time he's riding the animal, and sure, there's some concept that it's not the white charger, but he is extremely humble. He doesn't, he doesn't own his own properties that we know of. He doesn't have his own grave. He doesn't even have a place to pillow his head that's you know, his own. This man with humility, humility saying that I'm going to serve others, that I'm going to come in. By the way, when Jesus stops and he looks at the city, when Jesus stands there and he looks at the temple, could Jesus have invoked his authority and taken over the kingship at that moment? Why didn't he? Because he's going to humble himself even unto death. Unto death. Do you remember what King George said about George Washington? When George Washington refused to become the ruler of America after the war, he said that is one of the greatest men in all of history that would refuse the crown when he just won it. Well, Jesus had the city at his hands, at his feet, he could have taken over at that moment, but this wasn't what he was supposed to do. In humility, he needs to serve God. It would have been easier, <coughs> but he needed to serve the Lord. Here he comes with great humility, comes in. Because, so that leads us to number three. He was loyal to God. His characteristic of being loyal in the sense to doing what God wanted, the way God wanted. <sighs> it just... I was thinking the other day when I was reflecting on this passage, and I was listening to talk radio, 
And talk radio was talking about, you know, different quarterbacks and how maybe the team will get rid of the star quarterback because of this, this, this. And I'm thinking, sports are so fickle, are they not? How, how, you know, how strong is the fan base, typically? As long as you keep on winning your fan base. And if you're the professional athlete, your team is all behind you and they, you're their man until... All of a sudden, they find somebody better. What about this crowd that's following Jesus? Are they fickle? Yes, no? Oh, yeah. You come Thursday, what are they going to be crying? Crucify him, crucify him. So they go from, Hosanna, Hosanna, you're the God, you're the Messiah. Hosanna, Hosanna, to we have no God but... Yeah. And so this is a fickle crowd. In my mind, as I understand the story, Jesus knows everything. Does he know that this crowd is fickle? Yeah. Does he know they don't appreciate him? But he's not about what the crowd says. He's not about you know, the cheers. He's not about the, you know, the situation of people, people saying, you're our man. He's about serving his father, doing the will of his father, my desire, my zeal is to do the will of the Father. Now talk about loyalty. He is loyal to the Father no matter what others do, what others say. And I have to ask myself the question, am I that loyal to God? Am I persuaded to want to not do what I'm supposed to do because somebody may say things? Oh yeah, in my flesh, right? Am I, am I tempted to not be the husband I'm supposed to be because she doesn't fully appreciate what she's got in me? <laughs> Some of you are going, poor Deb. Okay. Am I the dad that I'm supposed to be even when the kids don't appreciate it? That, that comes down to loyalty. Loyalty to God or is it based upon what people say? Loyalty to God, even at the workplace, when you're not appreciated, and you say, well, why should I work as if I'm serving the Lord? They don't appreciate it, but you're serving the Lord. And so that loyalty factor, let's close with this. There's one other great attribute, characteristic, the most amazing one that stands out. You probably know what it is already. He was loving. Do you remember what Jesus does as he's coming over the Mount of Olives and views the city of Jerusalem? What happens? Everybody's cheering. Everybody's excited. But according to Luke 19, what does Jesus do? He weeps. He weeps bitterly. The only other time that has that same concept of weeping bitterly is at the tomb of Lazarus. Now he's weeping bitterly because he knows what's happening. He knows that these people don't fully understand. They don't fully get it all. They want the, they want the political. and Yeah, they want the Messiah, but they want a different Messiah. And he is brokenhearted, and he still comes into the city. He still marches forth. And i got to ask myself the question that says, do I have that same compassion for lost people that I will do my part no matter what it is to get the gospel to them? That's a potent question. That's a serious question. Do I love the way Christ loved? And then I can right away say, well, he's God, I'm not. So I don't have to. But what did he say? He said a new commandment, that you love one another as 
as I have loved you. He expects us to have that, that criteria of love. It's an amazing account. And I fear that sometimes it's so familiar that we forget the potency of it. This parade was fascinating. It was a fabulous time. But it provides for us illustration on how we should be loyal to the Lord, love other people, serve to the best of our abilities, like the master who is the greatest person who's ever lived. And if he could do that, then so should we.